Heavenly Father, we come to You in Jesus' name and we declare anew that we love You and that we need You. We praise You, God, and we thank You for who You are. We thank You for who You are, God. We thank You for what You have done. We thank You, Lord, for what You will do. And it is a a delight and a joy to know You and to grow in our knowledge of You all the time and to pursue You as treasure and to obey You, Father, to worship You, to serve You, to walk with You and to know You, Father. There's nothing sweeter than that. So I pray now as we get into the Word that this would be an extension of prayer, or excuse me, of worship, and that You would... Bless this time, Father, by Your Spirit, that You would minister to our hearts and our minds, and that You would take us deeper, God, and that our love for You would grow, and our desire to know You would grow, and our desire to obey You, Father, would grow. And so please help us and bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. amen. All right, well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 10. We are making our way through the book of Romans here at Calvary Chapel. We love the Word of God, and it's our desire to know the Word. And so we want to work through the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We believe this to be God's inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, sufficient Word for our lives. And so we want to gather around it as a family and study it together. Amen? Amen, amen. amen. We're in Romans 10. So... I just want to kind of start by framing this a little bit. Have you ever felt like you get in your own way? Have you ever felt like you get in your own way? you ever feel like you uh, sabotage, self-sabotage yourself? Or even go so far as to think that you are your own worst enemy? I'd say that we all know what it's like to uh, take on more than we can handle, to commit to things that perhaps we should not have to fail to commit when we should, to quit when things get too challenging, to start things and rarely finish, to say something that we have regretted, to overthink things, to overcomplicate things, to, uh, to be overly dramatic at times. You know, um, We may think that things would be a lot easier if it wasn't for us, right? You ever felt that way before? Um, it can be that way when it comes to spiritual matters. We can really get in our own way. We can overcomplicate things. Um, there are so many ways in which we can stumble over ourselves. And the reality is, God has made the way to Him quite simple. God has done everything that needs to be done. He has accomplished it on our behalf. He has set an invitation out in front of us. Yet, somehow, we manage to overcomplicate things. Sometimes we make righteousness seem so far away, so unattainable to be pleasing to God. Yet the reality is, it is closer than you think. Closer than you think. And I would say that's really the point of Romans chapter 10. And we're going to see that as we work our way through it. And if you look at the very end of chapter 9, verse 31, talking of Israel, and they were known for this, forgetting in their way, their own way. It says, But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Israel just couldn't get it. God had extended righteousness to them through faith and they rejected that. They had to earn it. They had to work it out for themselves by keeping the law. And so it was a stumbling block to them. Faith, God's gift, was a a trip hazard. They just stumbled over it. And so that's really the point of chapter 10, that it's been made available to us and it is closer than we think. And that's something you're going to hear me say over and over again. You know, Paul goes throughout the whole book talking about the glories of God and, and the gospel and 
who we are outside of Christ and our great need for Him and how He has justified us through the Son. He has declared us righteous, not guilty. But He didn't just do that. He brought us into the family of God. He made us sons and daughters of God. We have been spiritually adopted. Not just forgiven, but brought into the the household of God. And then Paul stops and says, I wish that my, my brothers, my countrymen, the Israelites had this too, yet they have rejected it. They have stumbled at faith. And so we kind of get into chapters 9, 10, and 11, and that's really the idea. God's made it so simple. He's extended it to us, yet the Israelites have stumbled over it. They don't seem to get it, and His heart's desire for them is that they would come to Christ and that they would know this great salvation, that truly they would have the righteousness of God through faith. So verse 1 Verse 1 of chapter 10 says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So this was Paul's heart and his prayer for his countrymen, the Israelites, that they would be saved. And in chapter 9, verse 1, he went so far as to say that he could wish himself to be accursed, damned, separated from God for all of eternity, if that meant salvation for the Jews. That is a very deep burden and prayer from Paul. And then he kind of takes up that same idea here again in chapter 10, verse 1. So that's still the context here. And Paul says that's his prayer for them. But then he says this. He says, you know, I will testify to this. I will say this much. That they have tremendous zeal. They have tremendous passion. But it's not according to knowledge. And so zeal, this is something that the Jews really cherished. This was a characteristic that stood out really above most. And that is... The word, it means jealous. And it's the idea of being jealous for God. Jealous for His glory. Kind of standing up for what is right and making sure that God is honored the way that God deserves to be honored. That is zeal. And that was something that the Jews really put a lot of um, emphasis on. And Paul, when he was talking about his um, kind of uh, all of his accomplishments in Philippians chapter 3, he talks about that very thing. What a zealous person that he was. But you know, there's something very dangerous about zeal and ignorance, right? And he says, that was the case. They're zealous, they're excited, they're passionate, I'll give them that, but it's not according to knowledge. And therein lies the problem, and that is a dangerous place to be. You can be as passionate as, you, as can be, you can be as sincere, as genuine as you want to be, but if it's divorced from the truth, if it's divorced from knowledge, that is a deadly dangerous place to be. And there are a lot of people in this day and age that are in that place because they think as long as I'm sincere, that's all that matters. You know, it's genuine, it's heartfelt. And so um, nothing could be further from the truth. You know, zeal, zeal plus ignorance. You know, it reminded me of a story in my BC days before I was walking with the Lord. And, uh, you know, I was kind of in a, a, a pretty dark time of life. And I was working for this guy. He was a general contractor. And we were doing a job at an art gallery. And so I was just, I was like the world's worst employee. And so often I would be on the job intoxicated and I think he was getting suspicious, but somehow he hadn't fully figured it out just yet. I don't know how I managed to pull it off up to that point. But anyways, we, we, uh, we were renovating this art gallery, and so what we were doing is we were taking out all of the existing handrails and uh, up the staircase and along the, the hallways, taking it apart, putting it back together, reinstalling it, just refinishing it. And so we come in on, on uh, Monday morning, and he said, all right, let's just pick up where we left off on Friday, and I'm going to go upstairs and talk to one of the artists. And I said, sure thing. So he goes, well, the problem is I couldn't remember what we were doing on Friday, and I couldn't tell him that, right? So I just took a guess. And so what I did is I started destroying everything that we did on Friday and neatly stacking it in the corner. 
So I was getting after it. I was zealous. I just had no clue what I was doing, right? And so he was up there for about an hour, and uh, he came down, and I'll never forget. He came down the stairs, and he was just shocked, as you would imagine. And he was like, what are you doing? And I was just looking at him like, what? I don't know. And so I think, you know, at that point, it became very obvious to him something was seriously wrong. And, you know, it's funny because years later, um, after I had come to Christ and had my life restored, uh, he hired me back and he told that same story and he, and he told it just like that. So I knew I wasn't over-exaggerating it, but it was so funny then, but it wasn't funny uh, when it happened. But, you know, that's my little story of zeal without knowledge, zeal and ignorance. It's a dangerous thing. It gets you in a lot of trouble. And so, you know, the reality is, is that when it comes to zeal and, and passion and excitement um, without, without um, knowledge, without truth, you know, we can do the right things so often and do it for the wrong reason, right? Uh, I think one example of this is being charitable, being very generous, but wanting to do it for recognition, doing it for notoriety. And Jesus talked about that very thing. He said that you shouldn't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. You don't want to be seen by men. God who sees you in secret will reward you openly. So that's doing the right thing for the wrong reason. We can do the right thing the wrong way. We can be very zealous about sharing our faith, but we can be downright obnoxious about it. Uh, we can come across as hateful or arrogant, uh, whatever the case may be. So you're doing the right thing, but you're doing it totally the wrong way. We can have great passion, but not for the best thing. We can be very passionate and excited about important things, good things, but then really neglect what is the greatest thing. And I think so often we do that when it comes to God, right? Uh, we, we love God and, and we want to have a life that is given to Him, but maybe He just kind of gets the leftovers and we're really consumed with all of these other things, seemingly good things. Um, you know, hobbies, career, working towards retirement, even ministry. I mean, that's the danger for people who are in ministry, pastors. We can totally neglect other things on the altar of ministry. Um, you know, family, that's something that we can, we can really get so consumed with family and, and everything that goes into that that we neglect the greatest thing, which is God. And God should be over all of those things, right? So usually the overemphasis results in the neglect of other things. We're so passionate about something and to the neglect of other things. And I, I think of a, of a story... Um, kind of in a generation before ours of a, of a well-known author and pastor who had such a tremendous passion for Christ and knowing Him. It's been said that this particular guy had prayer genes because he prayed so often on his knees he wore holes in his pants. So he had to have a special pair of pants so he didn't ruin all his clothes. And we think about that and think, man, that's amazing. You know, I'd love to have a walk with the Lord like that. I would love to be that passionate or excited about pursuing Christ but you know, after he passed away, it, things started to come out about how he treated his family. And he really neglected his family. And they struggled financially. I, I think I heard it said that they would, he would tithe 50% of his income even though they had great needs. And that um, his wife remarried and um, she said, you know, I'm happier than I have ever been. This particular guy really loved Jesus, but my husband really loves me. And that is a, that's kind of a, a, a hard thing to, to hear and to reconcile, but it can happen. And so just realizing that it's so important for us guys to do the right thing and to do it for the right reason, that we don't have zeal and ignorance, and that, um, that we have that balance that is godly, and that we have zeal plus knowledge that we're excited about the right things in the right way. Well, the Jews, kind of back to, back to the text here, they were seeking the right thing, but they were going about it the wrong way. The Jews really wanted to walk with God and have a relationship with Him, but it was not according to the way that God had set it up. God said that it was to happen a certain way. It was to happen through faith, and they rejected that. They refused that. They were working to exhaustion for righteousness, but you know what? It was so close. It was nearer than they realized. 
Paul says that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. God's righteousness is a gift to us through faith in Christ. So Christ is the end of the law. Christ fulfilled the law perfectly in our stead and we no longer have to strive to keep the law to be pleasing to God. It is a gift through faith in Christ Jesus. And I just want to say, that that's what legalism is. I may say this from time to time, but I think it's important to put this in front of you because I heard this again recently. Someone was talking about a church that they used to attend and they said, oh, I quit going there because they're so legalistic. And the reality is I, I highly doubt that. Um, I think that what people equate legalism with is this particular church actually expected me to be obedient to the Word of God. And so people don't like that. People don't like standards. They don't like being held to a standard. So then they cry, legalism, legalism. That's not legalism. We're commanded by the Word to obey. Jesus says, if you love me, what? You'll keep my commandments. You will obey me. That is a demonstration of our love, our obedience. But legalism is something altogether different. Legalism is it's almost like a contract. And it's, if I keep all of these things, then God will love me. If I do X, Y, and Z, then I will have God's favor. And then it goes so far as to even say, if I do these things, God owes me. I can expect, I can demand God's blessing because I have done X, Y, and Z. And, and that takes us to a place of, of pride. Um, that's a, a damning place to be, but conversely, more often, I think it leads us to a place of despair because who can really say that we do X, Y, and Z faithfully, daily? None of us, really. And so often, if that's our relationship to God, a, a one of a, a legal contract, keeping the rules, legalism, then more times than not, we're feeling the crushing weight of our own failures. And we think that God is displeased with us because we're not keeping His standard. That's legalism. And that's what the Jews were, were really caught up in. And Paul was trying to say, look, you can't keep it. You have a problem. You have to. Uh, you are accountable to God because God is righteous and you are not. That is a problem. But the good news is God gives you His righteousness. You can't keep the law. You can't earn it. But guess what? God will give it to you if you have faith in Christ. And we're going to talk more about what, that, what I mean when I say that. But that was the whole thing. It was faith in Christ. And uh, Jesus was the end of the law in that regard. And the Jews could not get that. So now Paul's going to start talking about the nearness of faith. Just how close it is to us. Verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does not do, uh, excuse me, the man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. So first off, Paul referring to Moses here. He says, Moses said that if you keep the law, you'll live by the law. He's quoting Leviticus 18.5. So if you keep the law, you will live, right? Well, the problem is, and Paul has already made it painfully clear, that we can't keep the law. So then no one will live. We're all, we're all damned. We're all in big, big trouble because we can't keep God's righteous standard. But life, God's righteousness given to us, comes through faith. And you know what? It's closer than we think. It's closer than we think. So Paul is quoting Deuteronomy 30 here. Deuteronomy 30, verses 12 through 14. I wanted to read that to you because it kind of helps. The language is a little confusing there in verse 6 and 7. And so let's just go back to Deuteronomy. It says this, verse 11 of chapter 30. For this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. 
So here in Deuteronomy, Moses was getting ready to send the next generation into the promised land. Uh, you know the story. The first generation, they failed. Uh, they, they made it to the promised land and then they, they shrunk back. They did not go in because the spies came back with a bad report and they listened to the ten spies. And so God said, for that reason, you will not get to go into the promised land. So that whole first generation wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and they didn't get to go in. And Moses didn't get to go either because of his own failings. So after 40 years, the next generation under the leadership of Joshua was going to go into the promised land. So Moses kind of recapitulated the law to them, the law that they had already received in Exodus and Leviticus. Now he's telling this next generation afresh. And so sometimes Deuteronomy is referred to as the second law. And so that's what's happening here. He's speaking to the people. He's encouraging them. They're about to go into the land. And then he says this, the command that I have given you today, it's not so mysterious that you can't understand it. It's not so far away that you cannot reach it. Do not say who's going to go over the sea to find it and bring it back to us. Don't ask those kinds of questions because the fact is it's nearer than you think. It's right here. It's in your heart. It's on your lips that you may do it. And so that is the context of Deuteronomy 30. And so Paul is referencing that and connecting it to Christ. And so Paul's point is that God's righteousness is not out of reach. Don't say who's going to go to the heavens and bring it to us. That is to bring Christ down from heaven. Don't say who's going to ascend into the abyss. That's to bring Christ up from the dead. And what Paul is essentially saying, the language is a little confusing there, but what he's saying is that Christ has accomplished everything to make it available to us. It's right here. The kingdom is at hand. The price has been paid. The invitation has been given. Christ has done everything that needs to be done. We don't need to do any more. Christ plus nothing. You understand? And so often we have to do Christ plus something. Christ plus obedience. Or Christ plus miracles and signs and wonders. Christ plus... There are so many things even in our culture that people attach to it, but the reality is... Christ plus nothing. He has done everything that is necessary for salvation and He has made it available to us. And guess what? It's Christ once for all. Christ once for all. He doesn't need to do it again. It's a sacrifice that is once for all, past, present, and future. The price is paid. It is finished. Amen? Christ plus nothing and Christ once for all. It's not impossible to attain it's closer than you think. It's closer than you think. Verse 9. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So it's really just that simple. Confess with your mouth. That's the first thing he says. Confess with your mouth. That is public identification. That is crying out to the masses. I have decided to follow Jesus. And we're not ashamed of that. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation. And Jesus said, you know what? If you're ashamed of me, I'm going to be ashamed of you and the coming of my Father and His holy angels. And so we're not ashamed of the gospel. We're not ashamed of Jesus. We will confess with our mouth that we need Him, that we believe in Him, that we love Him. And that's what it's all about. And that is what baptism is all about. It's a public identification. It's saying to everyone, I have decided to follow Jesus, that I have been buried with Him in death and risen again into the newness of life, and I will follow Him. And I want everyone to know that. So confessing with your mouth, identifying publicly with Christ, that He is the Lord... Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. That is so important, guys. The Lordship of Jesus. I can't stress that enough. Because where I'm from in the, in the South, um, everybody, I mean many people I should say, they want a Savior, but they really don't want a Lord. You know, they want to be forgiven and they don't want consequences. They don't want the fear of hell, but they don't really want God. It's like they want to go to heaven, they just don't want Him to be there when they get there. And so, um, it's not enough to just have a Savior. 
we are bowing our knee to Him as Lord. He is the King. He is the Master. He is the rightful owner and ruler of my life. To Him belongs all things. From Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. Amen? Amen. Christ is Lord. Christ is Lord. And so we confess with our mouth such. And then we believe in our hearts. It says that if you believe in your heart, and this is, it must be sincere. You know, I talked earlier about sincerity and genuineness. Divorce from knowledge can be a damning thing, but it is important. Knowledge alone is not enough. You can know the right things and not truly submit yourself to it. And so believing in your heart, sincere, genuine, heartfelt repentance and submission to God through the person of Jesus Christ, confessing His name and submitting to His Lordship, believing in your heart that is necessary, and believing what? That God raised Him from the dead. That is the resurrection. It's so necessary. And I would encourage you to read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul deals in great length with the, the reality of the resurrection. And he says that if there was no resurrection, then we would still be in our sin, that we would still be lost. But because of the resurrection, that proves that Jesus was who He said He was, that He truly had power over death. He said that He would die, but that He would come back, and He did. It proves that His sacrifice was accepted to God. If He had have truly been a sinful person and died in His sin, then He would have just remained dead. But He was exactly who He says He was. His sacrifice was accepted to God. It was pleasing. The cross was sufficient. It was enough. And it was finished on the cross. And then Christ rose again from the grave to demonstrate that. And then the fact that Jesus rose from the grave gives us the confidence that we too shall rise. So He promised that as He lives, we too shall live. And so because of the resurrection, we have that hope. We have the hope that we too shall rise and we will live with Him forevermore in glory. The resurrection is so necessary. That is the hope. And then He says, if you do this, you will be saved. You will be saved. Look, guys, point blank, that is what we receive. Salvation. That's what God came to do. God came... He sent His Son to save us from sin, to save us from death, to save us from the eternal punishment that awaits those who are still accountable for their sin. All sin is judged, period. But either your sin is judged on the cross in your place, or you are judged under your sin in eternity. And the choice is really that simple. But that is what Christ came to do. He came to save us from that judgment to set us free from our sin, to wash our sins away that they would be removed from us as far as the east is from the west and that we would have a loving relationship with the Heavenly Father, that we would be adopted into His family, that we would rise again and that we would be with Him forever. That we would be saved. Saved from the power and the bondage of sin. Saved from the consequences that await those who are in their sin. That is what Jesus came to do. And if He did nothing else beyond that, praise God, that is infinitely more than we ever could have deserved. Right? But what's amazing is He does do more than that. Not only has He saved us, but He loves us. He leads us. He provides for us. He protects us. He teaches us. He secures us. And one day we will be with Him. And so then He says that with the heart one believes unto righteousness... So righteousness comes by faith. That is, being in a right standing with God. Being declared righteous. Innocent. That is something that is given to us by God. With the heart, one believes unto righteousness. And with the mouth, one confesses unto salvation. Salvation by confession. So what what does that mean when we talk about confession? Because there are different ideas out there and practices when it comes to confession. And I'll tell you what it means. It simply means to agree. It does not mean that you have to actually recount every sin that you've ever committed. Praise God for that. It simply means that I have to agree with God. Agree with Him what? One, that He is who He says He is. That God is God. That He is the Creator of heaven and earth. And that all of creation is accountable to Him. 
and that He is perfectly holy and righteous and just and good and that He is a judge and that we have to stand before Him one day and give an account for our sins. That's agreeing with God that He is who He says He is. Then we have to agree that we are who He says we are and that we are sinners, that we are fallen, that we have not kept His standard, that we have fallen terribly short of it and that we are accountable to the judge for the wrong that we have done. And then that is to say that we need Him, that we believe that He has given us the gift of salvation and that we receive that and that we embrace that, that we need it and that we, we repent and we turn, of, turn away from our sins, from our old life and then we believe who He says we are now. We are forgiven. We are justified. We are cleansed. We are redeemed. We are reconciled. And when He uh, will see us to the end. Amen? That's confession. God is who He says He is. We are who He says we are outside of Christ. We need everything that He has for us. And when we receive it, believing that we are now who He says we are. Because sometimes we have a hard time with that, don't we? We don't feel very different sometimes, right? And uh, the Bible says one thing about us, but we have a hard time believing that, a hard time accepting that. But you have to believe that too. You have to believe that God has done what He said He would do and that you are new in Him and that you are forgiven. And you can have that assurance. Isn't this amazing news? This is the Gospel, guys. And the Gospel is so beautiful. And it is not just for unbelievers. I think that so often in the church we can treat it like that. This is elementary stuff. And I've heard pastors say things like that, and that is very grievous to me, that the gospel is kind of entry level, it's for unbelievers, but once, once someone's saved, they don't need the gospel. Now they need Bible teaching. And it is true, if every single week all I did was give an invitation message every week and nothing but that, that would kill a church because the church needs to be fed. The church needs to be taught. The church needs to learn about God's attributes and God's will for their life, what's displeasing to God, what's pleasing to God, how we can live lives that, that coincide with God's heart and will. That's also very necessary. But all of that is filtered through the gospel. I need the gospel every single day. I need the gospel more now than I have ever needed it before. So often I have to preach the gospel to myself afresh. And I have to remind myself of the gospel. And I have to thank God for the gospel. That God saves sinners. That we are all in big trouble outside of His gift of grace and His Son. That we are in big, big trouble. But that God has made a way God has made a way that we can know Him, be forgiven by Him, and walk with Him in love for now and all of eternity. That is the good news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's something that we need to remind ourselves of daily, daily. And it's my heart's desire that any time someone gets in this pulpit, every single message is going to be Gospel-saturated. It's going to be the Gospel. You know, you can preach Christ and miss the Gospel. I could have a very Christ-centered message and I could talk all about how wonderful Christ is and how holy Christ is and how loving Christ is and then I can tell you, now you need to go and do the same thing. And that is a dangerous message because it puts us in a place where, well, we can't do those things like Christ did, right? And so that's where the Gospel comes in. You can't, but I did it for you. God does it for you. And so now because of that, it's our heart's desire to make that our aim, and we certainly do that. God has given us that heart and that desire and the power of His Holy Spirit, but we recognize when we fall short of those things, guess what? It's okay. It's okay because I'm not doing those things to be right with God. I do those things because I am right with God through the Gospel. And we're re-energized by that. We're refreshed by that. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The debt has been paid. You are forgiven once and for all. You are cleansed if you are in Christ. And that is the fuel that drives us. Amen? That is the, the energy of the believer, is the Gospel. And so you can have a, Christ, a Christ-centered a message without the Gospel, but you can't have the Gospel without Christ. And so praise God for the Gospel. We need it. Everyone needs it. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord and you stand condemned, 
under your sin. You need the Gospel. You need Jesus Christ. You need what He has accomplished for you. You need Him. You need Him. Amen? Amen. And if you are a believer here today, you need the Gospel. Every single day, you need the Gospel. I need the Gospel. We need the Gospel. We need to be reminded over and over again because what you know what? We have a propensity to drift, don't we? We drift, don't we? And so we need to remember over and over again what Christ has done for us. Well, verse 11 says, For the Scripture says, Whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon Him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. No one will ever be ashamed for trusting in the Lord. Did you know that? No one will ever be ashamed for trusting in the Lord. He's quoting Isaiah 28:16 there. And he says, The Lord over all is rich to all who call upon Him. I love that. The Lord over all is rich to those who call upon Him. Oh, what a great salvation we have received. He is a God who saves to the uttermost. That is in Hebrews. I don't know the exact verse, but oftentimes we'll say from the guttermost to the uttermost. Right? But the idea that He saves to the uttermost is that simply this. It is a great salvation. It is a grand salvation. An extravagant salvation. And the saints come marching in. Amen? When we reach our, our final home, we do not come in with smoke on our clothes. We don't come in on crutches in a wheelchair all beat up. Amen? It is a rich and glorious and grand salvation that God has given to us. He is rich over all. And no one will ever be ashamed who trusts in Him. And whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Joel 2.32. That's what Paul's quoting there. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And we have this confidence. We have this assurance. If you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Call upon His name. And it's not because of our works, but it's because of the One in whom we have trusted. It's not because we deserve it. It's not because we have earned it. It is because of the grace of the One in whom we have trusted. And Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that He is able to keep what I have committed to Him until that day. Paul said, I am not ashamed. I know who I have believed. I have believed in the Lord Jesus. I have trusted Him. I have committed myself to Him. And I am convinced, absolutely convinced, that He is able to keep what I have committed to Him until that day. Paul's very life. And so knowing this, knowing this reality, we have a responsibility. We have a responsibility. Verse 14. How then shall they call on Him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him on whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. So there are people out there who need to hear. They need to hear. Either they have never heard, and there are plenty of people around the world that have not heard the name of Jesus. And there are plenty of people around the world and here in our own community that severely misunderstand Jesus and the Gospel. That's more the issue where we're at. I doubt that you would ever find a person around here who has not heard the name of Jesus, but I guarantee that the vast majority severely misunderstand who Jesus is and what He has done and what the Gospel is all about. And so Paul says, how will they hear if not for a messenger? So, a messenger is necessary. And God uses us as His messengers. God sends His Word out through people. That is amazing. God doesn't need us. God doesn't have to use us. But He chooses to. And that is so glorious. And then it says, how will there be a messenger if one is not sent? And so now that kind of puts the responsibility on us. As a church, we have a responsibility to send. We have a responsibility 
to send. Now we have a personal responsibility to be a light and to be a witness in our homes, in school, at work, out in the community, at the coffee shop, wherever your sphere of influence is, but we corporately have a responsibility to send. We ought to be sending people out, sending people to places that have never ever heard the name of Jesus. And we have a great responsibility before God to do that as a church. And I would even say individually. We have a responsibility individually to support missions and to support the gospel message going out. You can do that personally and privately. You can give to the cause of mission work. And so we should do it individually in our own lives as messengers of God. We should support individuals who can go out, who are called to go to places that we can never go. And as a church, we are to give corporately to the gospel message in the work of missions. Is the feet of this church beautiful? Does this church have beautiful feet? You know, because it says here, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel and bring good news. Does our church have beautiful feet? And so I want our church to be a church that is making a great impact around the world because we are giving to the cause, that we are a missional church here in this community and around the world. And we'll be talking more about that this coming year of specific ways in which we can be doing that, specific ways in which we can be involved in missions around the world here locally and in our neighboring areas and to the ends of the world. And I want to encourage you, be praying. Be praying for our church that God would use us in great ways and that, and that and that He would use you in great ways. Be praying that God would do that because we have the greatest news in the world. I don't know if we always believe that or live like it, but the truth is the truth. We have the greatest news in the world and we have a responsibility to share it. We have greater knowledge and greater resources than most which means that we have a greater obligation before God to do something about it. You know, I heard a pastor once say, in this room, we have everything that we could possibly need. We have all the resources to do amazing work for God in missions, but there's only one problem. It's still in all our pockets. Did you get that? Okay. At any rate, so... We have the resources to give to the cause, to give to missions, and we need to believe that we have a responsibility and we need to act on it. We need to engage. We have that responsibility. God didn't give this to us for us just to hold on to it. God didn't give us so great a gift of salvation that now we can, we're saved, so what else is there? Just kick back and relax and, and be busy building our own kingdoms and our own comforts and our own security no, we have the greatest message in the world and it's our obligation now to share it, to spread it, to send it. Well, there's a sad reality to this in verse 16. It says, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. So Paul says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word, the words of Christ. Literally, that's what it says, the message concerning Christ. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing what? The message concerning Christ. Hearing the gospel message. Faith in God comes by hearing the gospel message. Plain and simple. God uses that message in powerful and profound ways. And that's, that's another thing, guys. Sometimes you'll hear the, this idea that uh, I'll just let my life, I'll preach the gospel with my life and use words if necessary. That's, that's really kind of a cop-out. I, I hate to say that, but the gospel is a gospel message that must be told. It must be proclaimed with words. Now, a life that lives in contradiction to the gospel message can certainly hinder it. But um, you still have to share the message because faith comes by the message concerning Christ, the gospel. But the problem is not that people haven't heard it so often. 
The problem is that they have heard it and they reject it. And here Paul is quoting from Isaiah 53.1 and Psalm 19.4. And such is the case around here especially. Most everyone has heard it on some level, but they have simply rejected it. And that is a, a very hard and, and sad reality. Where, you know, where, I, where I used to live, everyone would say that they were a believer. Most often. Most often, anyone that you would, you would engage, they would tell you, yes, I'm a believer. And that may, they may use different language to say that, but essentially that's what they're saying. But then if you ask them what the gospel is, they couldn't tell you. Um, my wife went into the county jail. We both taught in the jails and... Um, she uh, asked all the ladies at the table if, if they were believers. They all raised their hand. And then she said, well, who here knows what the gospel is? And all their hands went down. And so that is kind of the, the blindness there is no one really knows it. They know something about it, but they will all hardly say that they are in it. They are in the faith. And when you start to press them on it, then they start to back off. They don't want all that. They're not signing up for all of that. Well, out here... People are much more uh, ready to just say no. They don't believe that. They hate that. They reject that. And, and believe it or not, uh, you'll hear people who come from you know where I live and say, "Man, that is so refreshing." You know, it must. I talk to brothers back home and they say it must be nice to be in a place where people just at least tell you they don't believe it, um, and you don't have to get them lost. Like you don't have to convince them they're not actually saved before you can actually share the gospel with them. And I get what they're saying is true, but it's still hard because people still reject. People still hate the message, right? People still um, don't want to hear it. And so it's not, that, not any easier, I would say. Um, but that's the sad reality. Well, verse 19, he says, But I say, did Israel not know? First Moses says, I will provoke you to a jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. So God is going to use a foolish nation to provoke the Jews. He's going to use the Gentiles, as it were. All the non-Jews would come to faith in Christ and God would use them to provoke the Jews to jealousy. So God does use people. As I said before, He doesn't need to, but praise God, He does. And can I just tell you something? God is using you and you don't even know it so often. I remember as an unbeliever when I was really in bondage and I was really broken and hurting, um, and absolutely trapped. I remember one guy in particular. I'll never forget it. I just, from time to time, I would see him, and I became aware of what uh, his life was really given to, and he was so kind to me, the way that he would engage me, and I just remember thinking, I'd give anything to be like that guy. Anything, God. I, you know, I remember just really um, being almost to the point of tears and thinking, man, you know, I wish that I was like him. And so... Just just being straight with you, you know. Um, so often you may not know it, but you, you are a light. And God's love does flow through you. And people do desire what you have. You may not ever hear that. Um, but just be aware of it. And be praying that God indeed would use you that way. Well, verse 20, it says, But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. Um, excuse me. And but to Israel he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So Paul's quoting from Isaiah 65, 1 and 2 here. I'd like to, to read that to you. It says, I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, according to their own thoughts. So God was rejected by His own people. God was rejected by His own people. He revealed Himself to a people that was not seeking Him, the Gentiles. And God is pleading with outstretched hands. All day long I have stretched out my hands to a stubborn people. So often the Bible talks about being stiff-necked you know, when it comes to rejecting God. My pastor in South Carolina would often tease himself because he didn't have a neck. And he just had a head and shoulders. There was nothing in between. And he would always joke about that. And finally uh, we were at a men's study and this guy shouted out, better to have no neck than be stiff-necked. And I thought that was good. I like that. And so that is so true. Better to have no neck than a stiff neck. So God is pleading with outstretched hands. 
yet so many have rejected. You know, God has made it so easy. He's revealed Himself. He has accomplished salvation for us. He has extended the invitation. John 3.16, you know that verse. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believed in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. God did that. God provided Himself a sacrifice. And God has made the way. He has given the invitation. Yet so many reject. Why? Why do people reject this? Well, I'd like to throw a few reasons out. I think that this applies to people who reject the Gospel outright. And I think these are all things that we, even as believers, as Christians, struggle with. I think really everyone in this room, we're going to probably be hit somewhere with, with this. So why do so many reject? What hinders faith? What hinders faith? Well, first and foremost, the most obvious one is simply unbelief. Doubt. Just a flat-out rejection. And it may be something that you just really wrestle with internally. You just can't, for whatever reason, come to, to grips with these things. There's just something in you that can't get over it. You just can't bring yourself to that place. And I can't help but think of a verse in the Gospel of Mark where the disciples were trying to heal this man's son and they couldn't do it. And so Jesus comes to him and says, Do you believe? Do you believe that I can do this? And he said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And I love that. I think that is so great. It's being honest with God because God already knows. You don't have to pretend to be something other than what you are. If you're struggling with unbelief as a believer or an unbeliever, I would encourage you, challenge you, just seek the Lord. Just say, God, help my unbelief because I have doubts. And if you seek Him, you will find Him. He will reveal Himself to you. But ask God to help with unbelief. A need to earn it. That's another one. This was the issue with the Jews. In the culture that we live in, you can pretty much, anything you work for, you work for it hard enough, you'll get it. Just about anything can be bought, right? And so we can't get over the fact that something is a gift. We just have to earn it. We have to work for it. But you know what? Your works aren't working. Your works aren't working. God has set this thing up in such a way that you can't earn it. You cannot pay for it. You have to believe. You have to trust. You have to accept by faith. Self-condemnation is another one. Your sins are not greater than the cross. I just need you to know that. Some people say, I can't come to God. You don't know what I have done. There's no way God could ever forgive me. That is to say that the cross is not enough. That God's sacrifice is not enough. Your sin is so great and His sacrifice is so small, it can never cover your sins. It can never wash away your sins. Self-condemnation, that keeps us from coming to God. Even as a Christian, sometimes we run away from God instead of just fessing up and being straight with Him about something that we are uh, bound to or tempted by. We run away from God. Intellect. This is another one. You just have to have all your uh, questions answered. Um, you're too smart for your own good. I say that lightly. I want to be careful. But here's the thing with God. At some point, it has to be faith. You'll never have all of your, your, your uh, questions answered. You'll just always keep coming up with more and more and more. And I think what's actually going on on a more deeper level is, is it's an it's a, a issue of morality. You could have all of your answers, all your questions answered, but you really don't want to submit. You don't want to have to trust yourself to a God who, who will hold you to a standard. And so oftentimes it's cloaked in intellect, but it's something much deeper than that. But there comes a point when you have to believe. It says that without faith it's impossible to please God. It's impossible. And so it's not a matter of now that I have all my, my questions answered, I'm ready. You, you won't reach that point. It's faith. God is not impressed with intellect either. You know that? God is not impressed with, with our intellect. And so there comes a point when we have to just lay that down and put our trust and our faith in Him. Pride. Pride is a big one. People just don't want to submit. They, uh, they think that they're self-sufficient. They can make their own way to God. They don't need God's way. They can create their own little system. Or, in fact, they don't need God at all. 
self-sufficiency, that's such an issue in our culture. It's pride and God hates it. That's, that's what it boils down to. Thinking that you have it in yourself, that you have the truth, that you can make the way to God. It's pride and it's stubbornness. Stubbornness, that's another one. you know. And people so often even hold that as almost like a badge. You know, I'm just, I'm just a rebel. You know, I'm just rebellious. And it's like, that, that's not something to be proud of. That's not something to laugh about. You know, the bottom line is, is that you don't control anything. You don't control the next five minutes of your life. You are really not free. God alone is free. He is under no outside constraint. And God is truly in control. And so we might as well put down the pride and put down the stubbornness and the rebelliousness and, and submit ourselves to, to God, to our Creator, to our Maker. Another one is love for sin. People just love their sin, point blank. And I think people would, would even tell you that. Um, here's the reality, though. The Bible talks about sin. It personifies sin as though it is something that seeks to master you. And God said that to Cain. He said that uh, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. And so we may love our sin, but the reality is sin is something that will destroy you. It's mastering you. And the end thereof is death. James talks about that. And so you may love something that ultimately is destroying you and keeping you from coming to God. Confusion is another one. Or I would say deception. This is the zeal without knowledge. Maybe you're programmed to believe something. You grew up under a certain system and, uh, and you can't shake that. You can't escape that. But the one thing is for sure, we can be deceived. And so again, I, I would say pray that God would show you the truth. That God would open your eyes to the truth. Fear. Fear is another one. What might it cost me? What will people think? That keeps people from coming to God. And the Bible says, don't fear what other people think or can do. Fear God. Fear the one who can destroy both body and soul. And so if you're going to fear anybody, fear Him. Don't fear other people and what they might think. And you know, and here's, here's how I would cap all this off with this statement. You know, you don't have to overcome these things before you can come to God. Do you know that? You don't have to overcome these things before you come to God. I've told this story before, but I remember years ago driving past the church one night with a buddy, and we were looking at the church, and he said, you know, Rob, one day when I get my life right, I'm going to go to church. And that sounded good to me, you know, and uh, I thought kind of the same thing. But the reality is it doesn't work that way, guys. And so you may have several of these things. You don't have to overcome these things. Just come to God. Just come to God as you are. He's closer than you think. He's closer than you think. And so I want to close with this, this Scripture. I read from Deuteronomy earlier. Um, and I'm going to pick back up where I left off, and I'm going to read a little further. And he says this, verse 15. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, and that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to walk in His ways and to keep His commandments, His statutes and His judgments, that you may live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and you are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you uh, cross over the Jordan and go in to possess. I call heaven and earth as a witness today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live and I love this verse right here, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey His voice, that you may cling to Him, for He is your life and the length of your days. So choose life. You have an option. It's set before you. Life or death, blessing or cursing. Choose life that you may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey His voice, that you may cling to Him. Cling to the Lord. For He is your life and the length of your days. And guess what? He's closer than you think. Closer than you think. As far as believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth. 
So uh, we'll go ahead and close the service now. Let me pray for us and, and we'll be dismissed. Father, we bless your holy name. We praise you. We worship you and we thank you, God, that you have made salvation possible to, uh, for us. You have paid the price. Lord, you have extended the invitation. And now if we confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts that Jesus is Lord and that, you, that He uh, was raised from the dead. If we put our trust in You for salvation, Lord, we will be saved. And we will have the righteousness that is gifted to us. Not a righteousness of our own which comes from the law, keeping the law, but the, the true righteousness that comes directly from You. And so we praise You, Father. We thank You for that. If there's anyone in here today who does not have that, I pray, Father, please, I know You're drawing them. I know that even now in this very moment, they are faced with a decision that must be made. Father, I pray, draw them, Lord, and that today would be the day of salvation, that they would put their trust in You, that they would confess, Lord, that indeed You are who You say You are, and that they are who You say they are, and that they need You, God, and that they would bow the knee and that they would put their trust in You for new life today. And so we thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.